really they're just these godless ideas, but they're cloaked in biblical language. And if we don't know our Bible, if we don't know the evidence for Christianity, and if we don't know our theology, these ideas are going to shake us. We're going to be deceived by these things. Hey guys, I'm Bill Westers, and this is the Encountering Truth Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Encountering Truth Podcast, where we examine the evidence for Christianity, engage culture with kindness and conviction, and encounter Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Well, we are going to be jumping into our first ever series. It's going to be a short series talking about the three main goals of the Encountering Truth podcast. Examine the evidence, engage culture, and encounter Jesus. But before we dive into today's episode, I just want to remind you guys to take a second and subscribe to the podcast and click the bell icon so you can get notified when a new episode drops. Uh, And then make sure to share it with your friends on social media. And check out our Facebook page and our website, which is EncounteringTruth.org. So let's jump in. First of all, why are you a Christian? Now, this is an extremely important question that a lot of times we just don't really even think about. You know, it's something we've just, we've made a decision somewhere along the way, and we've just kind of gone with that decision. We've never really reflected on why am I a Christian? Um, maybe it's because, well, my, my, my parents were Christians, and or I was just raised that way. Uh, maybe, I, maybe you had an experience, an encounter with Jesus, um, and or, or maybe you just like, oh, well, I just feel like it's true. I feel like it's good. You know, you just have your feelings. Well, if, if those are your reasons, those might be just a little bit too shallow. We have to ground our faith in something solid. Because the storms of life, they're going to come and they're going to shake our foundation. And if we don't have our our firm foundation planted right, those storms will beat against us and they will knock us down. They will destroy our foundation and we will fall away. So why is it important to know why we're a Christian? Okay, Why is it important for Christians to examine the evidence for their beliefs? Why does this podcast exist? Okay? Because one of the main things going on in this world today is that there is a youth exodus. There's, there's a lot of people leaving the faith, deconstructing the faith, walking away from the faith. In fact, uh, on the crossexamine.org website, they talk about how three out of every four Christian young people walk away from the faith after leaving home. That's a problem. Well, maybe it's because, you know, there's a lot of things that we can attribute that to, whether that's, you know, they go off to college and there's these atheist professors that are literally trying to convert them to atheism, that are making them feel stupid for believing in Christianity. And, and Or maybe they're starting to question their faith at a younger age. Even a lot of teachers in high school are starting to, to push these ideas towards them uh, that Christianity is wrong or bad, or why would you believe something like that? Um Maybe they've uh, people have grown up and just like maybe even in Sunday school or in church they've heard these Bible stories, but to them they were just stories. Are they real? Okay. Maybe maybe they never really felt like they were real. 
Okay? And or or maybe it's these these young people they they come out uh, you know, they've been under their parents' roof for so long, and uh, and finally they get their freedom. Now I can do what I want. I don't have to submit to the rules of this house. Okay, But the question is, how can we keep this from happening? How can we keep Christians from walking away from the faith when they leave home? Or And it's not just a young people. It's, it's a lot of people in our culture today in general. So there's, uh, J. Warren Wallace wrote an article that is on the the Fox News website, and it's called Young Christians Are Leaving the Church. Here's why. Uh, and I will link this in the show notes so that you can go check out this article for yourself because it's a great article. Um, but he, he starts talking about it. He begins off, he says, A new 2018 Pew, Pew Research Center report polled a growing group in America. Religious nuns as an N-O-N-E-S, none, right? Not, not like an N-U-N. But uh, he continues, it says, this group describes themselves as nothing in particular when asked if they identify with a specific religious group. The vast majority of are ex-Christians, and most are under the age of 35, uh, later on in, in this article, he says, in this study, most nuns, quote-unquote nuns, said that they no longer identified with a religious group because they no longer believed it was true. When asked why they didn't believe, many said their views about God had, quote-unquote, evolved, and some reported having a crisis of faith. Their specific explanations included the following statements. Um, one of them is, learning about evolution when I went away to college, or religion is the opiate of the people. Rational thought makes religion go out the window. Lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. Uh, another is, I just realized some somewhere along the line that I didn't really believe it. Uh, and finally, I'm doing a lot more learning, studying, and kind of making decisions myself rather than listening to someone else. So these were some of the statements in that uh, in that study that they ran. So he goes on in this article, and, and Wallace says, when Christians walk away from faith, more often than not, is due to some form of intellectual skepticism. Ex-Christians often describe religious beliefs as innately blind or unreasonable, but that doesn't accurately reflect the rich evidential history of Christianity. The psalmist appealed to the design and fine-tuning of the universe to demonstrate the existence of God in Psalm 19.1. Jesus appealed to both eyewitness testimony John 16.8, and the indirect evidence of his miracles in John 10.38 to argue for the authority of his statements. And the disciples identified themselves as eyewitnesses and appealed to their observations of the resurrection to make the case for the deity of Jesus in Acts 4.33. J. Warren Wallace goes on, he says, ex-Christians often leave the church because they don't think anyone in the church can answer their questions or make a case. It's time for believers to accept their responsibility to explain what Christianity proposes and why these propositions are true, especially when interacting with young people who have uh, legitimate questions. Rather than embracing a blind or unreasonable faith, Christians must develop an informed forensic faith that can stand up in the marketplace of ideas. We know why Christians are leaving, young Christians are leaving. Now it's time to give them a reason to stay. 
That's the end of this this article. And again, I'll link that in the show notes. But this is such a great article, and it's so true. It's so, it really highlights why it is so important to discuss to examine the evidence for our beliefs. In fact, we have to have this firm foundation. In in Matthew chapter thirteen, we we read the parable of the sower. And uh, so the question is like, how do we keep Christians from falling away? Well, let's read this this par- parable of the sower in Matthew chapter thirteen. Verse Verse 3 to 8 says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away, and other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then a, a little while later in Matthew chapter 13, he, uh, Jesus actually explains this passage, this parable of the sower to his disciples. In, in verse 18 to 23, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root inside himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But, care, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So how do we keep Christians from falling away? Well, we have to till the ground of their hearts. As uh, Greg Kokel talks about in his book Tactics, and then again in his book Street Smarts, he says that there's a lot of more gardening that takes place before the harvest. We, we get so focused on bringing in the harvest, bringing people to Christ, but a lot of times there's a lot of gardening, so to speak, that takes place. It takes a lot more time of, of gardening before we can finally reach the harvest. This is kind of like what it's like when we're we're sharing the gospel with people, but it's also uh, in, in our everyday life, in Christian life, that we have to till the, the ground of these people's hearts to make it a, a, a good soil. And even our own hearts, we have to keep that, that ground soft so that it can, so the word can take root in our hearts and that it can last and endure and so this is what apologetics is really all about. It has a lot to do with that. It's it's what Francis Schaeffer calls pre-evangelism, right? It's tilling the guard, the 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 ground of our hearts so that the word can take root. Because if the word doesn't take root, okay, if this if we don't examine the evidence and, and allow this to take root, 
Okay, then whatever things will come against us and, and we have no root. And so it's like sowing the, the seed that fell on the rocky ground that did not take root so that when trials and tribulations and persecution come, it would we'd last for a while, but we fall away. Okay? And so Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 27 reads, it says, everyone then, this is Jesus speaking, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So we have to till the ground of our hearts. How do we do that? Well, we have to ex examine the evidence. We have to look into our beliefs and let them take root and soften our hearts so that those, the word can take root in our heart and last and endure. Because remember that biblical faith is not a blind faith. Biblical faith is actively putting our trust in what we have good reason to believe is true. So how do you have good reason? Well, you examine the evidence like we've been saying. There's wrong ways to do it. Should we just take someone's word for it? No, that might be one way to get started, but we have to examine it for ourselves. Okay? Should we just trust in these experiences that we've had, these emotional experiences? What if they wear off? You know, think about it, like Mormons and Muslims, they could claim the same thing. Well, I had an experience that I just felt this burning in my bosom, that this must be true. We have to have good reason to believe that it's true. Okay? We can't trust our feelings. Feelings can, can, are good, they're God-given. And these experiences and encounters, they, they can come from God, and they, God blesses us with those things sometimes, but they are unreliable. They don't last. We have to continue to examine the evidence. We have to continue to get the Word in our heart, till the ground of our heart so that the Word can take root. We have to have solid evidence. Because when doubts come, look, doubts are going to come. We're all going to have questions, and doubts rise up. But we want that word to be so deeply rooted in us that when those doubts and those storms of life come, that they're not going to shake us. But how do we do that? Well, when the doubts come, we look at the cumulative case. We look at the evidence. And we can say that, you know what? I know that this, what, this is what makes the most sense. It's what's most true to reality if we know the evidence for it. It's not just some fairy tale. See, these atheist professors and, and just atheists, they, they, the, what they've done is they've promoted this idea that reason and logic are contrary or at, at odds with faith. Okay? Reason and logic and faith, they're not, they're not opposites. The opposite of reason is irrationality. The opposite of faith is unbelief. We talked about this a couple episodes back. Okay? It's been mischaracterized. They've said, you know, it's like uh, 
they've made it out to be that, you know, oh, well, Christians just believe they have faith without any kind of evidence or faith even in spite of the evidence. Well, it's so blaringly obvious, yet you have faith in... No, there's actual real faith for us to believe what we believe. Christians have bought into this idea that our faith is supposed to be blind, and it's just not true. There's evidence. and John Lennox puts it this way. He says, faith is a response to the evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. Reason is not the opposite of faith. Reason and faith, they are complementary. They are not contradictory. So we are called to use our mind. God gave us a brain as Christians, as human beings. God gave us a brain, and he wants us to use our brain, use our mind for his glory. Okay? He gave us a brain and a mind for a reason. God says in, in his word, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What does that mean to love the Lord your God with all your mind? Uh, we, we focus so often about loving the Lord with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, with all of our strength, just so strong in this, you know, in Mark 12, 30 is where this comes from. We focus so much on those things. But what does it mean for us to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, to worship Him with our mind? It's not just being passive, just accepting, oh, I just feel in my heart that it's true. Okay? No, we have to examine our theology. We have to examine the evidence, use our mind. We have to read. We have to look into it. We have to study. We are called to be like the Bereans who were of more noble character because they received the word of God with all eagerness and yet searched the scriptures to make sure that what, it, that what they were hearing was true. Because we don't want to be blown and tossed about by every wave of doctrine, like Ephesians 4.14 talks about. And there's so many things in this world right now that they sound Christian. This progressive Christianity, are, are they're really they're just these godless ideas, but they're cloaked in biblical language. And if we don't know our Bible, if we don't know the evidence for Christianity, and if we don't know our theology, these ideas are going to shake us. We're going to be deceived by these things that are cloaked in biblical language. Uh, there are so many terms these days that are just loaded with false ideologies at their very core. People, they're, they're based on anti-biblical and, and, and anti-Christian, not just like unbiblical or non-Christian. But no, like it, there's so many things in this world right now that are anti-biblical, anti-Christian. And if people don't examine where that comes from and actually use their mind to figure out what is underlying those ideologies, okay, then, then there's going to be this major shift going on in the church. And it's not good, and it's not biblical, and it's not Christian. We have to maintain a biblical worldview because there's so many things that just sound Christian. Oh, it's inspiring, and it sounds pretty. It makes me feel good on the inside. But we have to use our minds. We have to examine the evidence. We have to examine our own theology. And if it doesn't line up with Orthodox Christian belief, when I say Orthodox, I'm not talking about like Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox Church. Okay, Orthodox just means right belief. If if what's being said is not lining up with historic Orthodox Christian belief, then there's something wrong. But we have to be able to examine that. And so many Christians, they just like say, they just get caught up in this idea of like, Whoa, it sounds pretty. They use the word love. 
okay, or or biblical language. And and what's happening is that, uh, as Jay Richards puts it, that this world is is weaponizing our compassion against us. And they're saying, "What? What do you mean? You don't you don't love these people?" But the problem is, they're not defining what they mean by love. See, they've deceptively change the definition of these words, words like love and even justice and care and in your heart. And, and they've used these, these things that sound pretty. Love is love. Follow your heart. Live your truth. But yet they don't define what they mean by those things. So I've, I've seen it put this way, and I tried to find the exact quote, but I couldn't find where it came from. It says they're, they're using the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. The same words, but different definitions. And we have to be aware of this. And so things like biblical love is not the same as affirmation, because people want to quote things like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Love is patient, love is kind, long as love is, you know, long-suffering and it bears much. You know, uh, we, they, they want to use 1 Corinthians 13, but you know what they always stop short of? Where it says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And, and people think, oh, well, Jesus, he just loves me just the way I am. Yeah, but he loves you too stinking much to let you stay that way. Jesus came because he loves us, but he also wants us to change because he loves us. He wants us to lay down our lives and take up our cross because he loves us. And the cross is an instrument of death. So he's not talking about just bearing a burden. Oh, woe is me. I'm just bearing the burden by, by holding my cross. No, he wants us to die. Die to ourselves lay down our lives, take up his cross and our cross and follow him. Well, God wants me so, loves me, so he wants me to die? Yeah, because that's the only way that he can spend eternity with you in heaven. We have to die to ourselves so that we can spend eternity with him. And so we get caught up in these ideas and we get sucked into this feeling of like, oh, well, Christianity, I just believe it. I just, I just think it's the right way to go. I think it's the right religion. It just feels good. I just feel it, and I know. And, and, and we have no solid evidence, no real reason for what we, why we believe what we believe. And yet, God has written eternity on our hearts. He, he's revealed himself in creation. As Romans 1 verse 20 says, it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But You know, trials are going to come. And yeah, we might have that inside of us, but we have to take the time and the effort to Worship the Lord with our mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Because we need a strong foundation or you will be shaken. When, when those storms of life, the wind and the waves beat against us, 
what do we do? We examine the evidence. If we've examined the evidence, we look at the cumulative case and we say, you know what? All of these things line up to explain life and reality. Yeah, you're still going to get doubts and you're still going to get questions, but you'll know that when you look at the whole of this cumulative case for Christianity, then one or two questions is not going to derail the whole thing. And so what is the evidence? Well, of course, we've, we've mentioned it before. There's so much of it. We can't get into all of it right now. But uh, if we look at the cosmological argument that the, that the universe had a beginning, whatever had a beginning had a cause. And that cause for all of space, time, and matter to come into existence would have had been spaceless, timeless, and immaterial outside of those things. It would have been enormously powerful. It would have been incredibly intelligent because this universe is finely tuned for human life. That's the design argument. How can that happen? Is this just some cosmic accident that everything is so finely tuned to the nth degree to be able to support human life that if you changed it by one in... 10 to the 40th power or whatever that if that if that was any different than by that much then human life wouldn't be possible with these types of things like the gravitational force and uh things like that okay the biology uh biological evidence for god like the origin of life how did, how did life come from non-life? Science still has no way to explain how non-life became life. It can't be reproduced. How can that happen without a life giver? And then the message in our DNA, millions of characters long, that has literally coded us to be the way that we are. It's a message and messages come from a mind. Information comes from intelligent beings. And we can look at the moral argument that talks about the transcendent, that there's a transcendent moral standard that exists, that there's objective morality out there, that there are things that are just wrong for everyone, everywhere, in all times. And so if that's the case, where can that come from? A moral law must come from a moral law giver. If we claim we have rights, and these rights are not endowed by our government, but by a, something higher than our government that we can appeal to, it has to come from a superior being. And then there's the, the evidence for the resurrection, Okay, we've, we've had one of our first episodes was about the evidence for the resurrection and, and how Gary Habermas has his, the minimal facts approach that says that Jesus existed, that he died by Roman crucifixion, that there's an empty tomb, and that after Jesus' death, the tomb was empty, and the disciples had real experiences that they believed to be appearances of the risen Jesus. Look, none of this stuff is controversial. This is widely accepted that this is the case, that Jesus lived. And this is not a controversial thing. If, if someone doesn't think that Jesus actually walked this earth, they have not read the evidence and read the scholars. They have not paid attention to people, even atheist people like Bart Ehrman. Okay? They are just ignorant, okay? So, 
these things are not controversial that Jesus lived and walked on this earth, that he died by Roman crucifixion. Even the fact that there was an empty tomb and that the disciples had real experiences. Now, they'll have different explanations for what those experiences are. They, of course, uh, skeptics and atheists, they don't believe that it was actually... Uh, actually were appearances of the risen Jesus, and we talk about this in the, the episode we did about the resurrection and this evidence, um, but they had real experiences that they believed to be the risen Jesus. Uh, and then these experiences transformed their lives, even the lives of James and Saul, who were unbelievers, and were they were transformed, being willing to go to prison, to be tortured, and to die excruciating deaths who dies for a lie, something that they would know to be a lie. So, and then we go on, we can talk about the evidence for the reliability of the Bible, and we're going to be doing an episode about this uh, down the road, where uh, we look at how these, the they are early eyewitness accounts. Look, the book of Acts doesn't record the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That was in 70 AD. And in a historical narrative like the book of Acts, you would think that that significant thing would have happened, uh, if that would have happened in that before the book was written, then they would have written about that because that's kind of important in a Jewish culture. But it wasn't there, so it was probably written before that. And then Luke, the Gospel of Luke, was obviously written by Luke, like Acts was, but it was written before the book of Acts. And Luke actually appears to have used Matthew or Mark as one of the sources for the gospel of Luke. And so that would have had to been written even earlier. And then you have like the early creeds in like 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, the early eyewitness accounts, and they've been corroborated by early church fathers that were uh, basically... The, the, the protégés of some of the disciples, like John. Uh, but not only just the early church fathers, but people outside of the Christian faith, like J- Josephus, the Jewish historian. People like Thallus and Tacitus, who was no friend of Christianity. Okay? They talked about Jesus and the followers of Jesus. So it's been corroborated. And the, then we can look at the evidence for the accuracy of the scriptures, that we have a pretty accurate copy. Uh, we can look at the, the details within the, the scriptures, that the historical names and locations seem to be accurate according to history. We can be certain that we have pretty accurate copies because, look, we have Greek manuscripts that number well over 5,000. And the latest number I have is 5,856 New Testament, Greek New Testament manuscripts. You know what the next one is? The Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad, which is only about 1,900 copies. Okay? Not even half as many copies. Like a third of the copies of, of what we have of the New Testament documents and Greek manuscripts. And within a much narrower uh, uh, time frame from the original writings. And so, uh, and then we talk about, you know, some people want to talk about, oh, well, they're not, you know, they have all these errors in them. Well, for one, we have so many copies that the variants are easily identifiable because with so many copies, you can see 
kind of the progression of what it was, and you can get the the message of what was being said, and it's e easy to see what the correct wording actually was and which ones are just errors. And, and, and most of these errors, the great majority of these errors are simply spelling or syntax, like word order things, like, oops, I put a the E before I, I before E, except after, you know, like, uh, so it's those types of things where Christ Jesus versus Jesus Christ, word order, spelling errors. Beyond that, uh, all these errors are clearly denoted in, in the footnotes of many Bibles. They're, we're well aware of what these, these uh, variants are, okay? And, and then none of these variants actually have any significant impact on any core doctrine of Christianity. So we have accurate copies, reliable copies. We have evidence of the resurrection. We have evidence for the existence of God. And it's important to examine the evidence because, look, this is not a fairy tale. Okay? This is not just some myth. It's what C.S. Lewis called the true myth. He says, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. We have to worship the Lord with our mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay, We, as Christians, cannot just rely on our parents' faith. We cannot rely on what we grew up with. We cannot rely on some experience or encounter that we had or some feelings that we have about it. We have to examine the evidence. We have to ingrain that. We have to till the soil of our hearts so that the Word of God can take root, so that when the wind and the waves come and beat against us, that we will not falter. Okay? And we need to train up the next generation to do the same. So how do we examine the evidence? Well, you read Okay, there are so many different apologetics books uh, that 20, 30 years ago, this was not the case. This, this whole realm of apologetics has exploded because it is so super important. Pick up some apologetics books. Get Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell. Get Cold Case Christianity by J. Warren Wallace or anything else by him. Get I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norman Geisler. Pick up one of Lee Strobel's books. I remember The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. When I read that, I remember standing in church after reading that and thinking, holy moly, Lord God, this when I'm worshiping you, you are real. Like It's not just like this idea of, uh, of God that walked on earth. Okay, This is like, this is evidence. This is factual information that it, it hit home in a way that had never hit home in 30 plus years of being a Christian. I was blown away by that book and, and what it did for how I, I looked at Christ. There's plenty of websites out there. Go to stand to reason, str.org. Uh, there's a Great, uh, great website that, that can answer a bunch of questions, and it's called, hey, gotquestions.org. Okay, really good website that you, you got some questions, go plug some questions in there. They probably got answers to them. Okay. Study. Maybe, maybe you can go back to school, go to seminary. Some, you know, a Southern Evangelical Seminary uh, has, has 
apologetics programs. Okay, find a place like that. Okay, uh, and then finally, listen. Okay, go to apologetics conferences. There's lots of them. Unshaken Conference with Natasha Crane, Elisa Childers, Frank Turek. Okay, there's the Fearless Faith Conference. Any, any of these people, these apologists, look up there on their websites. You can see what their schedules are. You can go listen to them. Go, go interact. Bring friends and family members that might be doubting or have questions. Okay? And in the world of podcasts, <laughs> YouTube podcasts, uh, there's the Frank Turek has the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. Elisa Childers has the Elisa Childers podcast. And guess what? I know of a pretty darn good one called Encountering Truth. And you're listening to it right now. So click that subscribe and, and engage with us. Check out, go to our website. If you have questions, feel free to go to our website and, and, and send me some questions. You know, well, maybe we can address them on uh, one of the episodes that we do. But remember, we make it our goal to examine the evidence, engage culture, and encounter Jesus. God bless. We'll see you next time.